friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to work together through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Thank you for joining this community. A community who have made the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of their daily lives. It doesn't matter whether you're here for the first time or you've been here all along, and it doesn't matter what pace you're doing this. New episodes are posted every day, Monday to Friday, but you're quite at liberty. Follow along at whatever pace suits you. If you are here for the first time, then can I suggest two things? Number one, you subscribe wherever you're getting this podcast from, and that way you'll never miss another single episode. And also, hang around at the end where I'll give you lots of information of of ways in which you can connect to other aspects of my ministry offering always free Bible teaching resources, always free, always freely available, and always copyright free in the public domain. Thank you for joining with us today, and I'll see you at the back end. Okay, people, we're going to be considering today this famous scripture where Jesus enters into the temple area and cleanses it as it's described in my Bible. So let me begin by reading for you today from the verses that we're going to be covering, which is Matthew chapter 21, 12 to 17, which tells us this. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and saw the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these ones are saying? And Jesus said, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? Then he left and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Okay, that's the scene, that's the events at the temple. So let's begin today by looking again at this scene outside the temple. And we need, first of all, I think, to consider what greets Jesus upon his arrival. And we'll let me just do that by revisiting the very first few verses for you quickly and remind you what it said. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all of those who bought and sold in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And then the blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So, if we remember the entry into Jerusalem itself, that had been defiant. And here is a further defiance added on to the open defiance that was seen earlier as he arrived in on what we call today Palm Sunday. To see this scene unfolding before us, we need to visualise the picture of the temple at that time. We need to visualise what the temple was like at that time on that day. But in order to do that, we need to understand that the New Testament has two words which are translated 
temple for us today in most of our Bible translations. And rightly so that there were two words used because there's a clear distinction between the two areas that those two words referring to, which can sometimes get missed in our modern English translations. You see, the temple itself was called the Naos. It was a comparatively small building and it contained the holy place. And within that, even, there was a further small area called the Holy of Holies into which only the high priest could enter and even he could only go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. One man on one day, once a year. But the Nios, this inner temple itself, was surrounded by a much larger, a vast space, which was occupied by successive and ascending courtyards, and that wider area was called the Heron. First within that area, as you entered it, was the court of the Gentiles, into which anyone might come, and beyond which, upon the end of death, any Gentile dare penetrate beyond that point. Then there was the court of the woman, as entered by the gate of the temple, called simply Beautiful, and in, in through there any Israelite, man or woman, might come. But next there came the court of the Israelites, and that was entered by a huge gate called Nicanor's Gate, a great gate made of Corinthian bronze, which actually needed... 20 men to open and shut it and it was in this court the men assembled for the temple services and later there came the court of the priest into which only the priests might enter the name gives it away and in there stood a great altar the altar of the burnt offering and the altar of incense the seven branch standard lampstand the menorah the table of shewbread and the great brazen laver and at the back of that, beyond that, that's where the Naos, the inner temple itself, stood. Now the whole area, including all these outer courts, in our modern translations it's often just referred to as temple. But in the Greek, as I said, it's Heron. And a different word is used always to keep a distinction between the two words and the two places that they represented. So there's the inner temple within which is the Holy of Holies, the Naos, and then there's the wider temple area and precincts, and for that the word used was Heron. Now the scene of this incident was the court of the Gentiles, the Heron area into which anyone might come. And it would have been especially crowded and busy at that time, because as you remember, it's Passover, and pilgrims have been arriving from all over the world. So that whole temple area would have been absolutely thronged to capacity. You see, as well as religious Jews, there would have at that time have been many Gentiles visiting. For the temple at Jerusalem was known and famous throughout the world. Even the Roman and the Greek writers described it as one of the world's most amazing buildings at that time. Now, in the court of the Gentiles, there was two types of trading going on. There was the business of money changing, and that's because every Jew who visited the temple had to pay a temple tax of one half shekel. And that tax had to be paid with a legitimate temple currency. And it had to be paid close to the Passover time itself. Roughly a month before Passover, booths were set up in small towns and villages and money could be paid in exchange there. But after a certain date, it could only be paid at the temple itself. And it would be there and in that way that the vast majority of pilgrim Jews 
from other lands would arrive and then they would pay it. The tax had to be paid in a certain currency, temple tax it was called, and although for general purposes in the area all currencies were considered of equal value in Palestine, the temple fee had to be paid in a special stamped currency. It could not be paid in the coins of any inferior ally or coins that had been clipped, which was a common practice to represent a proportional value of a full coin, but it had to be paid in these coins which were made of a very high-grade silver. It could therefore only be paid in shekels of the sanctuary or what were called Galilean half-shekels. But the function of the money changers within this temple area was to change unsuitable currency into what was considered the correct currency. Now, on the face of it, that can be seen just part of an entirely necessary function that arose out of the religious regulations. But the trouble was, all these money changers were charging a fee for changing the currency that had risen exponentially over recent years. And also, they added another layer, another tier of exchange tax, if you like, in the fact that if a coin was greater than the value of a half shekel, then they charged another fee for giving back the surplus change. That's to say, many a sanctuary pilgrim would arrive and he could pay, yes, he could pay his sanctuary shekel, but if he wanted his change back, he had to forfeit 40% of that change or of the original amount, whatever was higher to pay. And early historical records show that the amount that was paid in that return change tax was equivalent to at least one and a half days of a working man's wage. Now this whole matter was not necessarily an abuse, but the trouble was that it had lent itself to abuse and it lends itself to the absolute exploitation of the pilgrims who had just come to worship. Because of the closing of the local village booths, approximately two weeks before Passover, that meant people travelling from great distances had no opportunity to exchange their money at the temple. And the the temple money changers had set up in such a way that they were making huge profits out of it. And that was just the exchange of the money. Then there was the selling of the dove thing and other sacrificial animals. And that too had become just as exploitative. For most visits to the temple, you see, some kind of offering was essential. Doves in the very least. Well, if we take them as an example, doves were necessary, for example, when a woman had to go through a purification after childbirth or when somebody was healed from a contagious disease like leprosy, they would come to the temple, have their cure attested to and certified, as per the law of Leviticus chapter 12, by the way, and after which they would have to give a sacrifice and thanksgiving. Now, it was easy enough to buy animals for sacrifice outside the temple, but any animal offered for sacrifice within the temple area must be inspected and seen to be without blemish. So there were these official inspectors of animals, who not surprisingly, you'll find out they charged a fee. And everybody knew that to all intents and purposes, it's almost certain that they would reject any animal that had been bought outside the temple marketplace. And they would then direct the worshipper to the temple stalls and booths to buy the animal for sacrifice. Now, no great harm would be done by that if the prices had been the same or similar to those outside the temple. But historians have shown that a pair of doves, for example, bought inside the temple cost 30 times more 
than a pair bought just outside the temple grounds. So these stalls and these places had become places where victims were exploited. And furthermore, the area which sold the animal, which was by the way called the Bazaar of Aeneas, was actually the private property of the family of the high priest of the temple at that time. So it seems that at the time of Jesus, nepotism was ripe. A famous Bible historian called Burkett says, the temple had become a meeting place of scamps and the worst kind of commercial monopolies and vested interests and exploitation. Another well-known British historian, Bible historian Sir George Adam Smith wrote, in those days, every priest must also have been a trader, which of course meant that there was this ever-present situation of an ongoing, shameless exploitation of people who at the end of the day had just come to seek and to worship God. Now it's easy to see all this and use this as a basis for a complete condemnation of the whole temple worship and the situation around it. However, I do think we need to keep things in the balance and two things should be kept in mind when approaching this issue. Firstly, it's true that there were many traders who were fraudsters and they were operating in the temple court. But remember, there were also many who arrived with their hearts set on God. So as today, any institution should not be judged solely on the worst of it, but we should also consider the best. The other thing that we can simply say in this day and age is let the one without sin cast the first stone and let any church or Christian institution that is perfect or without sin, let them cast the first stone too on this situation. The traders were probably not all exploiters. Even those who seized the opportunity of making a a quick profit were not all necessarily simply money grabbers. This is probably a perspective that has been greatly built upon with stereotypical attitudes towards Jews. In fact, the great Jewish scholar Israel Abrahams in the 19th century made a comment on the all-too-common Christian treatment of this passage and wrote, When Jesus overturned the money changers and ejected the sellers of doves for the temple, he did in fact do a great service to Judaism. Remember, the money changers and the dove sellers, yes, they are there. Yes, they are probably in the main exploiting the people. But they're not the only people visiting that the temple that day. And they're not by any means the majority of the people who are there that day. Many who have come, have, and many who will indeed have brought a dove or changed their money, were by no means just doing it out of a religious formalistic attitude. Many were there because they were seeking and searching for God. I believe this incident demonstrates to us about the situation, but it also teaches us things about Jesus himself. Firstly, it shows in this demonstration, and let's call it what it is, it's out and out wrath and anger against this situation. So it shows, actually for us, it's one of the deepest manifestations of his anger, and we see it directed against those who are exploiting their fellow human beings, and especially directed against those who are exploiting people in the name of religion and in the name of God. It was Jeremiah way back in the Old Testament who first said that it was men who made the temple a den of thieves, and Jesus quotes Jeremiah here. To put it simply, Jesus could not bear to see ordinary people being exploited for profit in the name of religion or God. 
Now too often today the church is still silent in such situations. The church, the community of faith, we as individuals all have a duty to protect those who find themselves in a highly precarious situation, one from which they cannot or do not have the means or resources to protect themselves. That's always been a mission of the church. But secondly, another thing it shows us about Jesus is his anger was specifically directed against those who made it impossible for ordinary people to worship in the very house of God, the temple. It was Isaiah who said God's house should be a house of prayer for all his people. And Jesus quotes him as well. The court of the Gentiles, as we have come to see, was the only part of the temple into which Gentiles might come. So it should have been a great witness to the power and the people of God. And we should note that and not assume that every Gentile came just to sightsee. Many would have come with a spiritual longing in their souls to maybe see what was going on, maybe even to worship and to pray and to seek God. But the uproar of the buying and the selling and the bargaining and the auctioneering would have made prayer, well, it would have made it impossible. So those who sought God's presence were being debarred from it by the very people working at the house of God. God will hold accountable those who make it impossible for others to worship him. Of that, I am sure. But also be assured, friends, that this very thing still happens today. It happens in a different way than it did then, but it happens today, I'm sure. A spirit of bitterness or a critical spirit or a spirit of strife or an argumentative culture can get into any church, which then by nature makes true worship impossible. People who hold office in church, leaders, even ministers and pastors can become so concerned with their rights and the perceived wrongs against them or they can get so wrapped up in the religious practice and procedures of what they're doing that in the end no one can worship God in the atmosphere which they have created. Even ministers of God can become more concerned about imposing their way of doing things on a congregation than with just simply preaching and teaching the gospel and pastoring and caring for people. And in the end, that community is left damaged and the service is left with an atmosphere which can make true worship almost impossible. You see, the worship of God and the arguments and the clamour of people can never go together. And what I think this passage teaches us here is to be wary of that because we see the wrath of Jesus is primarily directed against those who are blocking the approach to God of their fellow human beings. There remains one more thing to note. Our passage ends with Jesus healing the blind and the lame in the temple court. You see, they were still there. Jesus did not clear everyone out. Only those, perhaps with guilty consciences, fled before his wrath. Those who needed him, well clearly they still stayed. This illustrates that those in need are never sent away by Jesus. Jesus' anger is never just stands as a negative thing in isolation. It never stops with just being an attack on what is wrong. It always went on to be a positive call to helping those who are in need. In truly great faithful people, Righteousness, anger and love can go hand in hand. There can be an anger against those who exploit the vulnerable and block the person who's seeking God, but there is always love which remains for those whose need is great.
whether that need is spiritual or physical. Any display of God's righteousness, as seen here, must always go hand in hand with a wrath against unrighteousness, whilst at the same time recognising and expressing the healing power of love. Okay, let's revisit the last few verses and see what happens and the reaction to what's going on. But when the priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise? Then he left and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Now the use that Jesus makes of the quotation from Psalm 8 verse 2 makes it clear that these are absolutely real children in mind. It's not talking about the disciples, as some of the commentaries I've read suggest. I don't believe that's the case at all. There's just been an amazing series of events here. It's not every day that the traders and the money changers were sent packing, and it's not every day that the blind and lamed were healed, side by side, events on the same day. When we take this story just as it stands and listen afresh and see what happens and then make sure we notice also at the end that we hear the voices of the children shouting their praises, we are forced, I believe, to accept one great indisputable fact. And that is that there are truths which only the pure in heart can see. Truths which are in fact hidden from the supposed wise and learned and the supposedly spiritually sophisticated. There are many times when heaven is nearer to those with a childlike attitude than it is to the cleverest man or woman. George MacDonald once said he placed no value on the alleged Christianity of a man at whose garden gate the children were afraid to play. You see, the goodness that can be seen through the eyes of innocence, even through the eyes of an innocent child, can stand the test of time and the test of the simplicity of all goodness indeed. In a way, I suppose it's saying it's absolutely natural that the children should recognise who Jesus was when the scholars were blind to who he was. I pray we, like them, and like Jesus said, when he said, suffer the little children to come unto me, that we too can accept him and approach him with a childlike simplicity of faith. Okay, my friends, that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Jeremy McCandless, and you've been listening to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. An opportunity to make the study of the Word of God central and part, and indeed part of the rhythm of your daily life. The podcast is hosted on thebibleproject.buzzsprite.com but it doesn't really matter where you're getting your podcast from, but I do recommend that you subscribe to it so you don't miss another single episode. There's always an episode notes page and a full transcript available of everything I say, but if you're not seeing that where you're currently getting your podcast from, just pop over to thebibleproject.buzzsprout.com and you'll find all those active links there. Places where there are more formal structured discipleship courses, 
and places even where I shall very soon be putting free PDF versions of all my back catalogue of books. So with that all said, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for being part of this community. We're doing this together and I'm eternally grateful for each and every one of you who's decided to join me on this journey. So with that said, make sure you come back again soon. I'll be here tomorrow, but whatever day it happens to work for you and at whatever pace it suits you, I do hope I'll see you again soon on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.